Amen. Well, if you're visiting with us this morning, you are joining us in the middle of a sermon series through our church's statement of faith. We use a statement of faith called the Second London Baptist Confession. It was written in 1689 by some Christians in England, and it has served the Christian world for those 400 years nearly. Uh, This statement of faith has uh, 31 or 32 sections to it, and we are in the 13th section uh, on what's called sanctification process by which we grow as Christians in holiness. Uh, This section is in the middle of a series of sections that all sort of help define what we mean as Christians when we talk about salvation. So just to think about what we've gone through over the last couple of weeks. Two weeks ago, we thought about justification. That's how God declares righteous in a legal verdict, a once and for all time legal verdict where God declares sinners righteous through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It happens instantly in a moment when a sinner is given repentance and faith. And last week, our brother Jahil had us thinking about adoption. One of the results of our justification, one aspect of our salvation is this glorious truth. That we who were sinners and spiritual orphans have been adopted into the family of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we become heirs together with Christ, joint heirs with Christ, because of this adoption. And so as Jahil pointed out last Sunday, justification is a legal term. Adoption is a family term. Justification has all of the the final uh, kind of verdict and power as a judge banging a gavel. But adoption has all of the warmth and tenderness of a father hugging his child. So we are not only justified, but we have also been adopted. And this morning, we come to a third issue in, in, sancti- in salvation called sanctification. Now, sanctification differs from justification and adoption in this respect. Justification and adoption are instantaneous. They are one point in time events that continue to be true for the life of a Christian. Those things begin then a process called sanctification. So we will be sanctified as God's people For the life, for our entire Christian lives, we will grow by God's grace in holiness. And that's what we want to think about this morning as we look to Ephesians chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be considering verses 17 to 32. And if you're visiting with us this morning or somehow you forgot your Bible this morning, you need a Bible, raise your hands and uh, some of the brothers in the back will, will bring you a Bible. Uh, so Ephesians 4, 17 to 32, had a couple hands here and there. Um, let's bring them Bibles. If you don't have a Bible at home, please take this Bible. Let it be our gift to you. We, we would want you to have a copy of God's Word, and we would be delighted for you to take that with you. Don't, don't feel like you're stealing. You don't have to sneak it in your purse or on the arm and, and walk out real fast. It's a gift. Uh, so, so take it and enjoy it. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 down to verse 32. Anybody have a page number on that using those Bibles we handed out? Page 978. Page 978. Ephesians 4, verse 17. Now this I say 
and testify in the Lord. And you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put in away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry, and do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. If you're taking notes this morning, I want us to hang our thoughts on kind of four points. So sanctification requires that we, number one, stop walking like unbelievers. Stop walking like unbelievers. See that in verses 17 to 20. As sanctification requires, number two, that we learn Christ, that we learn Christ. You see that in verses 20 to 24. And as sanctification number three requires that we then live completely differently. We live completely differently, verses 25 to 32. And as sanctification number four, which isn't in this text, it's in other places in the Bible. I'll give you a couple other passages. It requires that we trust God, that we trust God. The main point in the sermon is let's pursue holiness depending upon God's promise to make us holy. Let's pursue holiness depending upon God's promise to make us holy. For it is God who makes us holy. So let's see this first point in verses 17 and 20. Sanctification requires that we stop walking like unbelievers. In verses 17 to 20, we're going to see that admonition in verse 17. We're going to see a definition in verse 18. And we're going to see uh, the conditions that follow in verse 19. Notice the admonition in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Notice now Paul speaks here with all the authority available to him. He first speaks in his own authority as an apostle. And then he says, wait a minute, I testify to this in the Lord. In other words, he's calling God himself to bear witness to what he sang. This I say to you and testify in the Lord. The you here 
refers to Christians in the church there in Ephesus. The Gentiles refers to all people groups who were not Jews. It's the Bible's way of referring to all the peoples, all the nations of the earth who did not know God, who were not in a covenant relationship with God as Jewish persons were. We, we might call them today very simply unbelievers. Or if we want to use a term that has a bit more of a pejorative connotation to it, we, we might talk about pagans, the pagans peoples of the world. That's, that's what Gentiles are. Here's the point in verse 17. Christians must no longer walk or behave like unbelievers or people who do not know God. We all once lived that way. That's why he says, you must no longer. Right? Now, that, that puts the spear through the heart of self-righteousness. Sometimes Christians forget that they were once not Christians and forget that they live lives full of sin, marked by sin, and sometimes then turn to people who are not yet Christians in this kind of judgmental way, looking down at them through our noses. And if you're here and you're not a Christian and you've had that experience, I apologize. Because if we were more thoughtful about what the Bible says to us, about what we once were, we would be more compassionate and careful in how we speak. Notice here, you once walked that way, but don't walk that way any longer. You must not, you must no longer walk that way. How did they walk? See there at the end of verse 17? In the futility of their minds. That means that their living and their thinking was empty and ineffective. It was futile. What does that mean? Well, that's the definition he gives us in verse 18. He unpacks that a little bit further, what the futile mind looks like. See there in verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So futility of mind involves at least three things, a darkened understanding, an alienation from the life of God, and a hardness of heart. And those three things are really all part of sin's great destruction in the human life. How many of you have ever seen a, a picture or maybe a movie that featured the explosion of an atomic bomb? The bomb hits the earth, and the first thing you see is this column of smoke rising up, and then that column of smoke mushrooms out. That's why they call it a mushroom cloud, right? You've seen that mushroom cloud, and, and if somebody said to you, hey, you, you ever seen an atomic bomb go off, you, you tend to think of the mushroom cloud, don't you? You don't think of the bomb itself, but it's the bomb that caused the detonation, the explosion, that gave rise to the pillar of smoke and the cloud. Verse 18 works sort of like that. The real bomb here is at the end of the verse, the third thing, the hardness of heart. That, that's, that's, that's the problem in the human heart that, that gives rise to all these other things. The, the, a hardness of heart is a, a resistance to the truth, a disobedience to the gospel, an unwillingness to, to receive what is good and right from God. And it's that hardness of heart, because it refuses the knowledge of God, that leads to this ignorance that's in people. And notice what happens with that ignorance? They're alienated from the life of God. What does that mean? 
Well, it means what Paul says over in Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3, that we are dead spiritually if we don't yet know God. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, and we are, we are going the way of all the sons of disobedience. We are following the course of the world. We are being swayed by the prince of the power of the air, which is another way of referring to satanic powers. We are, we are alienated from the life of God. Therefore, we are dead spiritually. And then comes the mushroom, which is the first thing that he gives us in verse 18. It's a darkened understanding. These are folks who think they see light, but they actually are calling darkness light. And it cannot be otherwise because God is light. And and the best light of all by which to see is that light that comes from God. But if we are alienated from the life of God, then we we are in darkness. And you remember what our Lord says in the gospel, if the light in you is darkness, how dark indeed is that light? And isn't it true that in our day, in our culture, there's so many ways in which people call darkness light? They they want us to believe that bad things are actually good things? And it's because if we're not Christians, these three things are true of us leading to a a futile mind. There's a hardness of heart. There's an alienation from God. There's a a darkening of the understanding. And and though the world think it goes the right way, remember what Proverbs 14, 12 says. There is a way that seems right to man, but the end of it is death. Notice then what results. Verse 19 You see, atomic bombs produce certain sort of toxic results, like acid rain. The sort of electrons and neutrons, and now I'm beyond my science depth here, so y'all have to go Google the rest, but the electrons and neutrons and all the radiation stuff that happens goes up into the atmosphere. It comes down as acid rain or toxic rain or sometimes called black rain. And those are, the, those are the toxins from the explosion of that bomb that, that are breathed in and, and they go into the water supply and the food supply so they are ingested and this is how people get radiation poisoning. And it's lethal. Well, the radiation poisoning of this bomb of sin is in verse 19. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now, verse 18 tells us what's going on inside of a person who does not believe in Christ. And verse 19 tells us what their life looks like on the outside. Here is the fallout from that explosion of sin in the heart. Notice, first of all, that they are callous. People cut off from God become callous. That's another word for hard. A hard heart makes for a hard life. They, they become uncaring and unkind. There's no sympathy in it. There's a meanness of spirit that develops. Their, their consciences have been twisted, as it were. We might call them cold-hearted or, or ruthless. When I was in college, man, we used, to, we used to talk about this brother or that brother being hard. My brother hard. 
And we used to kind of glorify hardness, right? This is what so much of secular hip-hop does. To glorify hardness, this guy that, that doesn't care, who does what he wants to, does what he wants to to other people. He's, he's hard, right? And the world glories in that. The world glories in ruthlessness in the boardroom. The world glories in ruthlessness between intimate partners. This callousness. But God doesn't praise it. It's not a beautiful thing, beloved, to be hard-hearted, to be callous, to be unkind and uncaring. I notice the rest of this acid rain in verse 19, they become sensual. Not only callous, but also sensual. They, they have given themselves up to sensuality, the text says, which means that they, they live by their senses. And, and especially, they look to enjoy and to express and to pursue those physical senses that, that satiate the darkened soul. And, and particularly here, the word has in mind uh, sexual sens- senses, sensuality. They've given themselves up to their desires. They're taken over and controlled by that darkened way of thinking. And notice what it leads to. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. They're greedy. They have an appetite for, a voracious appetite for all kinds of unclean things, all kinds of dirty things, all kinds of morally wrong things. They're just driven by this greed to pursue that sensuality and everything that's impure that comes from it. Keep your finger there in Ephesians 4 and turn with me to Romans chapter 1. So you might be thinking, well, what does this look like? And elsewhere in the Bible, God tells us what it looks like. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Paul here begins to describe the condition of people who live under the wrath of God because they've not yet believed the gospel of God. Look at verses 18 to 23. That's a description of the inner hardness, the alienation from God and darkened understanding. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. That's hardness of heart, isn't it? Or give thanks to him. But they became, notice, futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were, notice, darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. But then look at verses 24 and 31 where we get a description of that outer callousness sensuality and impurity. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, 
men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. It's a dark picture, isn't it? It's a picture of our day, isn't it? When the symbol of authority and democracy and all that's meant to be good and right in American political life is painted in a rainbow, the symbol of gay pride, of, as the text says here, leaving the natural use of the body, it's striking. In verse 32, Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. That there is wrath and judgment for the practicing of this darkened way of life. And beloved, not just in terms of homosexual sin, but heterosexual sin. And bestiality. And all the kinds of things that are listed here. The rejection of God in the form of disobedience to parents. Have you ever thought about your disobedience to parents, your parents, as something that angers God? As evidence of a darkened mind and a futile way of thinking? It is. And our text tells us that we once lived that way. And our eyes tell us, as we look out on the world, that there are still people who live this way. And maybe you're here this morning and you've not yet come to faith in Christ and, and you don't necessarily recognize yourself as being described by Ephesians 4, verses 17 to 19. And you might even be a little bit offended at the preacher for saying such things. How judgmental. This is why I don't go to church. This is why I don't like Christians. Please, let me assure you that this is not my verdict on your life. I don't know what you do in the privacy of your own home. I I don't know your deeper thoughts. I I don't know what desires you have that, that drive you. This verdict is God's verdict. He does know your secret thoughts. He does see you in your private acts. He does know what your desires are. This, in verses 17 and 19, is not the preacher's word. This is God's word. And this is how a holy God sees sinful people. Beloved, if you're here this morning and you reject Jesus Christ, as long as you reject him, you are hardening your heart. And if you look to live in any way apart from God and apart from his word, you, you are really pursuing not light, but you're pursuing your own darkened thinking. And the result of that is not ultimately going to be joy and blessing in your life. 
the result of that is going to be God's judgment. Because all the actions you take independent of God are actually actions you take against God. All the ways in which you look to live your own way, the Bible describes as sin. It describes as wandering away from the path that God has marked out for us. And that path which he has marked out for us is the path of peace and joy and blessing. Your own thoughts and your own desires deceive you if they suggest to you that there's a way to be happy and to be good apart from Jesus. This is God's word on the matter. And it's God's word on your life. And it would be the height of folly to reject this. But it would be to your joy, your everlasting joy, to receive this. Because after this bad news, after this bad description of our lives, and believe me, beloved, we all once walked this way. That's what the text says. This was true of our lives as well. We're not wanting to be those self-righteous Christians who are wagging our finger at you. No, we want you to come get in on what we have gotten in on. Namely, that God has given his son, Jesus Christ, for people who were darkened in their sins and who refused him and opposed him and whose hearts had grown callous toward him and who gave themselves to every kind of impurity and sensuality. It's for us who are sinners that Jesus came into the world. And it's for us as sinners that Jesus obeyed God perfectly because we had no righteousness to offer God apart from Christ. And it's because of our sins that Jesus was nailed to the cross and was punished there by God in our place so that our sins wouldn't finally condemn us if we believed in Jesus. That's the good news. You may escape darkness. You may escape impurity. You may escape everything that imprisons you and makes you hard toward God by turning from them and trusting Jesus. He was crucified to take away your sins. He lived in perfect obedience to provide your righteousness. He was raised from the grave for your justification and for mine. And his being raised from the grave was the demonstration that God accepted his sacrifice on behalf of sinners. And so everyone who turns from their sins and trusts in him will participate in that same resurrection, that same being raised from the death of sin to live to God no longer being alienated from the life of God, but in fact having the life of God dwell in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And to be so united with God in this life that nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing would separate us from him. That's the free offer of the gospel. This is why we exist as a church. This is why Risen Christ Fellowship is going to Philadelphia. This is why they are going to places where even some Christians oppose them so that they can make known this good news about Jesus. And we want to make it known to you today because you can have this Jesus and therefore have this life of God if you would repent of sin, which is a fancy word that simply means turn away from sin. And confess it as such. If you would confess your darkened heart and trust in Christ, God will send light into your soul and save you. Do not harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. 
believe in Christ. Trust in him. And don't leave today. If you've got questions about this, if this is still unclear, come ask me about it. Come ask the Christian friend who brought you. Anybody here who looks like they ought to know what it means to be a Christian, go ask them. You might help me find some members who need a little teaching. (laughs) Say, I asked that dude over there. He didn't know. I said, okay, we'll go tell him too. But don't, don't leave without serving your soul, without seeking this salvation that God offers in Jesus Christ. Christian, just one point about this first section. This is how we used to live. We must no longer live this way. Let that be blazoned on your heart and your mind. We must no longer live this way. This brings us to our second point here. Sanctification involves learning Christ. You see it there in verses 20 to 24. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You see, verse, 10, verse 20 begins with that contrasting word, but. It turns the direction from verses 17 to 19 into a new direction now. For the Christian, walking as an unbeliever is the old way of life. There's been a, there's been a change as a result of what Paul calls learning Christ. That's a curious phrase, isn't it? You've not so learned Christ. Notice, Paul doesn't say, but that is not the way you became a Christian. He doesn't say that it's not the way you got saved. He could say those things, but he says something more specific. That is not the way you learned Christ. Learned Christ is the language of discipleship. To learn Christ requires we become students of Christ, which is what the word disciple means. By saying learn Christ, the the Bible puts the emphasis now not on a decision, but on a discipleship, Not, not on a profession, but on following. It's putting the emphasis on a way of life, on a on a pattern of life. Before the Christians were called Christians, they were called, interestingly, followers of the way. You can read that in Acts chapter 22 and 24. The Christian was one who was understood to follow a certain way of living, and and namely, to follow the way of living that's taught by the Lord Jesus Christ. So God is not looking for decisions merely. He's looking for disciples, for followers. We must learn this new way of life. And notice now in verse 21, Paul assumes that to be a Christian is to have learned this. So he says there, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. When had they heard about him? Well, it was when the gospel was preached to them. They they heard of this Christ and his sinless life and his crucifixion on the cross and his resurrection on the third day and his ascending into heaven and glory and the promise of his coming again to gather his people. And they heard that not just with the ears as if gathering intellectual facts. They heard that mixed with faith. So heard here means they believed it as well. So he's assuming that you have actually believed the gospel, that Jesus is Lord that he has been crucified and resurrected and exalted to heaven and is coming again, assuming you have believed that, 
You can't live the old way of life. And not only that, notice what the rest of the verse says, assuming you believe that and were taught in him. So believing is joined together with teaching. And this makes Christian teaching indispensable to the Christian life, vital to the Christian life. So if we're students of Christ, disciples, we are enrolled in the school of Christ. And if we would be his students, we must listen to his lesson, learn it, and obey it. Only bad students reject the instruction of their teachers. The good student listens and is taught and applies. And where they don't understand, they say, teacher, just as the disciples did, teacher, teach us to pray. Teacher, teach me to fill in the blank. This is what we're called to. This is what Paul assumes is normal in the Christian life, what we were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And why is Paul assuming all of this? Why is he making it now clear that that's his assumption? Well, isn't it because it's entirely possible to profess faith in Christ and to never have been discipled, to never have been taught? And I want to suggest to you that it's not only entirely possible, but it is most probable in our day. If I were to ask you to raise your hands if you ever had anyone who intentionally came alongside you as a Christian and began to systematically teach you how to live as a Christian, if I were to ask persons to raise their hands, my guess is you'd be the minority in this room. And you'd be the minority in the Christian church. And the reason is the church has so shrunk their understanding of the gospel that it almost always focused on this one point in time where everything builds to get you to make a decision for Christ. And we have often been guilty of leaving off the life that Christ calls us to live, the discipleship that Paul assumes here. It should be a normal thing for a person to enter a Christian church or to come around Christians and hear the gospel, and if they believe the gospel, have at least one, probably a number of Christians who commit themselves to teaching them how to now live out the faith, how to go from this old way of life to this new way of life. Now, as a church, the elders want us to be committed to this. We want us to have a vision for this, to embrace this, to delight in this. We want very much to take the Scripture and apply the Scripture to our lives on this point of making disciples of each other. And so we very much want to continue to meet with the older women of this church in accordance with Titus chapter 2 to encourage them and instruct them in the faith so that the older women of the church, according to Titus 2, would then teach the younger women of the church how to live this life. And we want very much, as again, Titus 2 says, to take the younger men of the church and to teach them self-control. It's striking when you read Titus 2 that the younger ladies have a whole list of things they have to learn. But God's just like, if you just teach these young men to be self-controlled, <laughs> you'll be doing all the work you need to do. Well, we very much want to pour into the lives of, of the younger men of this church and the older men to, to participate in that work. And, beloved, this means that the ministry of the word in the church includes the pulpit, but is not limited to the pulpit. That there has to be more than pulpit feeding. So we praise God and we make central the preaching of the word of God in our gatherings. 
But if you're only hearing the word of God on Sunday morning in a sermon when you're half asleep because you've been firing fireworks all night, the rest of the week is going to be tough. And your progress in Christ is going to be slow. And so we want a community where very naturally what we do is we just keep dipping our beaks into the water of the word. And we keep drinking from that, that water of the word. And so we do that on Sunday mornings when we gather. We, we're looking forward to the fall and launching uh, small groups officially, block groups officially. So that even in smaller groups through the week we began to invest in one another spiritually this way. We want to encourage this one-on-one. Older ladies, younger women, older men, younger men, peers. We want to encourage this in the workplace. We want our lives washed in the word so that we might be learning Christ day by day and as the day of his coming approaches. This teaching is vital to us being who we're meant to be in Christ. And Paul uses the metaphor here for it that we all should understand. This, this is how natural this should be. It should be as natural as taking off our dirty clothes at night, taking a shower, I hope, and putting on fresh clothes, right? It should be that natural. See how he he says that in verses 23 to to 24? Notice what he writes there, or 22 to 23. Um, To put off your old self, this is what we should have been taught in Christ. To put off your old self, which we've talked about. It belongs to your former manner of life, and it's corrupt through deceitful desires. Those Those are the dirty clothes, the old self. And verse 23, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And how does that happen? Well, it's by the word of God. It's by the washing of our minds and our hearts by God's word. It's how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 12 when he talks about don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And that renewing comes as we feed upon the word of God. That's our, that's our spiritual shower each day. And then we get dressed. Notice there in verse 24. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, I don't know about you, but I find verse 24 beautiful. I I find it marvelous. Here's what it's telling us. That in the everyday battle for holiness, that in the everyday striving in sanctification, that in the ordinary reading of the Scriptures and hearing of the Scripture and encouraging one another in the faith, we are being transformed into the likeness of God. That's what sanctification is. That's what happens when the church gathers. We, We are washing off the filth of our week and our day, and we are being washed by the water of the Word. We're being renewed by the Word, and something is shining through. Something is pressing through the muck and the mire and the clay of the week. Something is pressing through our struggles and our stumbles and our faults and our difficulties. Something is emerging, and you see the, you see the nose pressing through the sheet of it, and, and soon the relief of the eyes and the chin, and what's coming forward is the very face and likeness of God in our lives more and more as we seek him. We're being renewed 
in that righteousness and holiness, which was our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden. But in their sin, that was lost, that was distorted. But now in Christ, what was lost in the garden is being restored day by day, increasingly, as we grow up into him. That's what sanctification is. Looking more and more like Jesus as we encourage each other in the word. This is how our confession puts it. In your bulletin, you can look there with me. Uh, I forget what page it is, but near the back in your bulletin, you have the three paragraphs from our statement of faith on sanctification. I want us to read together this first paragraph. Everybody have it? Page nine. Let's read this together. Let's confess this together. Those who are united to Christ, effectually called and regenerated, have a new heart and a new spirit created in them. And by his word and spirit dwelling within them, this personal work of sanctification is indeed carried further. All these blessings accrue to them by reason of the merits of Christ's death and resurrection. Sin's mastery over them is completely broken. The evil desires to which it gives birth are increasingly weakened and dealt their death blow. And saving graces in them are increasingly enlivened and strengthened. The practice of all true holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord, is thus promoted. That beautiful? That's what's happening to you, Christian. You have been regenerated and united to Christ because you heard the effectual call of the gospel. And now this work of sanctification is going on in you. Believe that. Trust that. Sanctification requires, number one, we no longer act like unbelievers. It requires, number two, that we learn Christ. It requires, number three, that we learn to live completely differently. That's what we see in verses 25 to 32. That second paragraph in our confession of faith, you notice the first line there begins something like this. Sanctification extends to every part of man. Your whole person is being sanctified in the Lord. And, and what we see in 25 and 32 is kind of a, an illustration of this, how, how this sanctification process touches our mouths, touches our hearts, touches our hands, touches our spirits, and touches our relationships with others. Notice there as it begins in verse 25 and also in verse 29, how, how this process of growing holy touches our tongues, touches our mouth. Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. I look down at verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to the hearer. We're coming now to the therefores. We're coming now to the practical section of this letter. And Paul has given instruction as to how to live. And the first thing he tells us is that, listen, if you are Christ, that ought to do something to your tongue. You ought to, first of all, take off falsehood. And secondly, put on truth-telling. Let us speak truth to our neighbors. And why? You see the reason that he gives us there? It's because we are members of one another. And how do we become members of one another? Well, it's because we are members of the body of Christ. We've been joined to Christ by faith, and each of us are a part in his body. And so we don't deceive each other. We serve each other in the truth. Your hand doesn't typically try to deceive your eyes, does it? And, and your mouth doesn't speak to your feet to confuse your feet. No, if, we, if we're sane, you know, our body works together. 
toward the same outcome. And our speech in the church ought to reflect this. And the fact that he lays emphasis on the fact that we are members one of another really indicates to us that our holiness is a group project. It isn't merely what we do alone striving for Christ. It's also what we do together, encouraging each other in that striving. And then notice verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. The old translation says, but only that which is wholesome. Right? So in other words, that we, we don't say things that are, that are dirty or things that are tawdry. And, and the, con- the connotation of that phrase there is we don't, we don't tell dirty jokes. We, we don't speak in lewd ways. No, no, no. We take that off. That's the old man. And the new man we put on, the way he uses his tongue is that he speaks to the needs of others. He speaks what builds them up, what edifies them. And notice, as occasion requires, he, he has an appropriate word for the appropriate time. And, and, and notice, so that he might minister grace to the hearer. Our mouths in Christ are meant to be channels of grace. They're meant to be spigots of grace. And our committing ourselves to speaking that way and speaking that way to each other is part of how God grows us in holiness. You can look back in over Ephesians 4, verse 15, where Paul talks about there about our growing up in Christ. And he says, speaking the truth to one another, let us grow up together into the head, which is Christ. You realize that the way we speak to each other is God's principal means for how we grow up into the fullness of Christ? So that at least means we ought to be talking to each other. And it ought to mean that we, we speak gospel grace to each other. That we ought to see it as a curious thing if we're Christian members of a local church, if we don't hear from at least one other brother or sister almost daily, at least weekly. And we can go the week without hearing from a brother or sister an encouraging word from the Lord. Are we really being the family of God? Are we really cooperating to encourage one another to grow into the fullness of Christ? Let's gossip the gospel. Let's speak often of Christ. Let's encourage each other as the day approaches for his coming. Notice the second thing. It touches not only our mouths, but it it touches our hearts, doesn't it? Verse 26 to 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. This verse... This verse for a lot of people doesn't become real life till they get married. It's like, dang, I got to lay down next to this rascal. I'm still vexed about what he said about the dinner I cooked. You know, I'm still upset that she didn't do fill in the blank. Be angry and do not sin. There is a righteous indignation that a Christian ought to have, particularly when they see sin and when they see injustice. Thus, the positive part of that on be angry. But there's something that tempers it, too. Do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath and give no place for the devil. We are to remember what the Bible says, that the anger of man does not produce the righteous results that God wants. So we're not to trust our anger, and we're not to let our anger fester. We're not to let it carry over into the next day and begin to redefine and distort our relationships. But rather, we are to see that anger for what it is, and we're to resolve it before the sun goes down. And you say, Pastor, what happens if... I didn't get angry till midnight. (laughs) Get right on it. (laughs) Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. And how many of you know that wrath is warm? 
Anger is warm. And that's why sometimes we walk up to it like a fire and we warm ourselves by it and we comfort ourselves by it. That's a mistake, beloved. That will not lead to holiness. You will eventually get so close as to be burned by that fire. Resolve it. Be warmed by love and not by anger and pursue the path of sanctification. So it touches our hearts, but notice also verse 28, it touches our hands, doesn't it? Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Our hands are not made for stealing, but for sharing. Among Christian people, there are those like myself who were once thieves. But now having come to know Christ, we have transformed to being covetous and, and selfish and taking what belongs to others to, to now open-hearted and open-handed to give to others. And work has a new purpose. We work not just for the satisfaction of our own needs and the accumulation of our own wealth. We don't work to build bigger barns because, fool, your life will be required of you this night, the Lord says in that parable. No, we work to provide for our family's needs and to meet the needs of others. You see, there are anyone who's in need. And this is why part of our calling into this part of the city, into Anacostia, one of our, our five M's, you'll remember, is mercy in the neighborhood, mercy on the block. We are called to be those who give, those who share, that we might meet the needs of others. That's what a Christian looks like. That's what holiness looks like. And notice it affects not only our hands, but also our spirit. Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Some people forget this, but God, the Holy Spirit, is a person. He's not a force. And as a person, he can be grieved. He could be, as in Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, people can attempt to deceive him. But the Spirit, notice there, he's our guarantee, he's our deposit until the day of redemption. That means God, the Holy Spirit, is always with us. And so we're to live the Christian life with that knowledge that, that the, the Spirit of God lives in us. How does Paul put it in 1 Timothy 3, verse 16? Don't you know that you are the temples of God in whom he lives by his Spirit? And there's a sense in which verse 30 is telling us that that ought to be up in the forefront of our thinking as we consider how we live. Will this thing that I'm about to do or say, will it please God who lives in me or will it grieve him? He's not going to leave you. He's not going to leave you, but we may grieve him. I mean, knowing that God is with you and wouldn't leave you, and knowing that if we have, are Christians, we don't want to grieve him, well, that, that should shape our next decision, shouldn't it? Our next action, the things we do, so that our spiritual lives are fervent and zealous it affects not only our spirit, but notice lastly, it affects our relationships, verses 31 and 32. And the sanctification should touch our communities. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. That's the old clothes, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. You see the contrast in verse 32? Kind, tenderhearted how that's set over in stark opposition to callous and hard-hearted. No, Christ has changed our hearts. He's given us new hearts. 
And the consequence of that is we ought to be not hard-hearted, but we ought to be forgiving. And how forgiving? Just as Christ, just as God in Christ forgave you. Here's a homework assignment. Spend time today just noting down some of the ways that God in Christ has forgiven you. Rejoice in it. Celebrate it. Treasure it. And let that then motivate you in forgiving others. Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to seek forgiveness from? Leave your gifts at the altar and go be reconciled. Go forgive and be forgiven. That you might experience the freedom and the love that comes from that. So those are five things that Paul gives us, and in some ways they are a better statement than our statement of faith. So look at the statement of faith again. Let's read together paragraphs two and three, and then I want to close with an encouragement to trust God. Look with me at paragraphs two and three. So sanctification, defined this way, extends to every part of man. Y'all reading with me? Extends to every part of man yet remains incomplete in this life. Sin's corrupt remnants continue to defile all parts of man, causing within him a continual warfare that does not admit of reconciliation. The flesh rises up against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. But don't be discouraged. Look at paragraph 3. In the war of flesh versus spirit, sin's corrupt remnants may for a time gain the upper hand. Yet the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ enables man as a new creature to gain the victory. And so the saints grow in grace, moving on towards a fullness of holiness in the fear of God. They earnestly endeavor to live according to heaven's laws and to render gospel obedience to all the commands which Christ, as their head and king, has laid down for them in his word. Let me summarize that and and give you a couple of proof texts um, to, to hold on to. Because no doubt, if we are pursuing holiness, we are made aware of the remnants of sin and corruption. We, we are made aware of the ways in which we keep falling short. We desire things that we don't want to desire. We do things that we don't want to do. And, and we put up our best defenses and we lay our best plans to pursue holiness. And we keep experiencing our limitations. And it's because we have this indwelling sin problem that's going to be with us for the rest of this life. And we could be tempted to be discouraged looking at our sin. But our progress in holiness does not depend upon our efforts alone, but upon Christ, upon God who makes us holy. Let me give you a couple texts, and you guys hang on to these. Philippians 1, verse 6. You will know this. And I am sure of this, the Bible says, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on until completion, until the day of Christ Jesus. This work that God has started in our lives, even though we experience the ups and downs of it, he has promised he will carry it on until he does the completing. He uses all of our feeble efforts. He even takes our stumbling, and he causes us to grow in holiness. And he will not stop 
until he completes it. Christian, that's God's promise to you. Or consider, for example, Philippians still, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Paul is writing to the church there, he says this, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. Now, if that's all the text said, we'd have reason for concern. Do you remember what he says in verse 13? For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. What's he saying there? He says, yes, go to work on holiness. Go to work on sanctification. Pursue it with all the means that you have. In fact, pursue it with fear and trembling. Pursue it with some concern that you want to make sure that you're in the faith. Test yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. But don't do the kind of testing that doubters do. Don't do the kind of testing that comes with despair. Test yourself knowing that it is God who is at work in you to will and to do. So your desire to pursue sanctification and your doing of it comes from God. That's his work in your life and you can trust his work. He will carry it on because you, at one point, Christian, didn't have that desire at all. Where did it come from? It came from Christ saving you and moving in your life. One last one, Hebrews chapter 10. Verses 12 to 14. Hebrews 10, 12 to 14. Hear these words. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It's an indication that the work of sacrifice was done. Verse 13. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made his footstool. And verse 14. So verse 12. Christ has made this single sacrifice and sat down. Verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being perfected. It's by his sacrifice, that one sacrifice, that your perfect holiness has been established. And it's on the basis of that sacrifice that you are still being perfected and carrying on until that glorious day. What does sanctification require of us? That we not walk as we used to as unbelievers. That we learn Christ, put him on. That we, in our whole lives, head, heart, hands, mouth, spirit, relationships, pursue this new life, and that we do it trusting God who began the work and who will complete it. Let's pray together. Indeed, Lord, we confess that we are yours and we marvel that you are ours, that you gave yourself to us, Father, in Christ your Son and gave us with Christ, O Lord, all things, including holiness. And we pray, O Lord, that you would bless us in our efforts to be sanctified, in our efforts to be like you. And we pray, O Lord, that more and more your face would be pressing through the veil of our lives until formed completely in us. And we do this, O Lord, trusting you who began the work and who will complete it. And we would have it no other way. But we know that in ourselves there is no good thing. But in you, O Lord, there is life and love 
and pleasure and joy forevermore. So let us hold fast to you and let us rejoice in your loving favor. In Jesus' name, amen.